In the Second World War, in May 1940, the British Army found itself with around 300,000 soldiers encircled by the Nazis in a French beach town called Dunkirk. The only way to escape was to evacuate across the English Channel. If they couldn't evacuate, their entire war effort was doomed. They needed to get as many soldiers out as fast as possible. In their desperation, they leveraged all the resources that they had available to them. They used Navy ships, cruise ships, citizens' fishing boats, and yachts to bring the army back as fast as possible. They constructed jetties or docks out of abandoned vehicles and, and wooden boards. They, they would have been fools if they have, hadn't used all they could to get to England. Desperate times called for desperate measures. In times of suffering, righteous Christians have far more available to them than any, any resources a nation has. They serve a faithful God who has given so much to the, that the Christian can leverage in prayer. When I use the word leverage, I mean to pray on the basis of God's past acts, his promises and character, to plead with him to work. When crisis comes and dark clouds arise, we can fail to leverage and take advantage of all that our faithful God has given us. We can neglect to go to God with our heartfelt cries. In Psalm 44, we see an example of a righteous sufferers leveraging all that God has given them. They're taking hold of God's faithfulness. The, the writers of the psalm are the sons of Korah. I, I will simply refer to the writer in this psalm as a psalmist. The psalmist has written a lament on behalf of the nation. And this nation is suffering greatly. They have had a great defeat in battle, and the psalmist is praying that they may be delivered from this defeat. The unique contribution of this psalm is that this nation claims to be righteous. They claim to not have been false to God's covenant. There are many times in Israel's history, as, as you know, that this psalm could have not been written. There are many times where they were not true to the covenant. But in this circumstance, which we don't know exactly where it is in Scripture, they, they could be said to be true to their covenant. I believe that all people can benefit from this psalm. Yet the group this psalm directly speaks to are those who are facing suffering through no fault of your own. I hope that God used this psalm to encourage you to lean into all the resources and all the gifts that God has given you, to boldly come before him in prayer, and to ask him that, that he may give you all that he's promised. In the first eight verses of the psalm, you can see that the first resource you are to leverage is God's faithful acts. So in the first eight verses, you see that the first resource that God has given you is his faithful acts. The devastation that the nation finds itself is in is very severe. 
Their army is in ruins. Their people have been enslaved. And they're a laughingstock to, to, to the nation. They're supposed to be to the light of the world. But it looks like there's just darkness in Israel. Amid the pain, the psalmist reminds God of all the acts of faithfulness he has done in the past. And then he declares that his hope and his confidence is in this same God who has done so much for the nation. At at the center of verses 1 to 8 is verse 4, where God is requested to ordain salvation for the nation. Verses 1 to 3 and verses 5 to 8 are reasons that the psalmist leverages in his plea to the Lord. In verses 1 to 3, the psalmist recalls back to God all that he's done for his fathers. O God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you have performed in these days, in the days of old. You with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. In his prayer, the psalmist is bringing to God's attention all that God has done in the past. All that his father and his grandfather have told him about. His grandfather and father would have told him the story of God splitting open the Red Sea and destroying the Egyptian army in an instant. He would have been told of the time that the Lord brought down the walls of Jericho without one human hand. He he would have been told of the great freedom that the Lord brought to Israel and the fact that he brought them land and blessing. In all of these stories, the the psalmist gives total glory to God for all the deliverances that he's been brought. And after declaring God's work of faithfulness, he pleads for God to save. He says to God, you are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. Notice that he calls God my king. It is as if it is as if It is as if he is saying, Lord, you're not only my father's king and my grandfather's king and their king, you are my king. And just as you acted for them, act for me. Then in verses 5 to 8, he declares that that the nation right now is doing the same things that his fathers have done who God has delivered. In verse 5, it is like as if he is saying, Just like the victorious nation of the past, we also push down our foes in your name. You get all the glory, God. In verse 6, we will also affirm that it is not our sword, but it is your arm that saves, Lord. In verse 8, he affirms that we continually boast and give thanks in the Lord. He is saying, because you were faithful to our fathers, be faithful to us. He leverages God's past acts of faithfulness in his prayers to ask God to work now. When a lawyer is presenting a case to a judge, one of the legal arguments they will use is precedent. A precedent is simply a history of how that judge or a bunch of judges have ruled in the past on similar cases. So, so the lawyer will attempt to explain to the judge how similar their client's situation is to others that have been decided. So since it's so similar, judge, you also have to act the same way for us. 
This is similarly to what this, the psalmist is doing. He's bringing up how God has worked with similar peoples and situations in the past and asked God to do the same now. As we look at verses one day, we have to ask a question. Why should we leverage God's faithful works in our prayer lives? Does God have to be reminded of the works that he's done? Are we reminding God of what he has done for the first time? It's like, Lord, you don't remember this. We have to remind you. Well, no, God, God knows what he's done. But one of the reasons that we pray through God's great acts of deliverance is that you're also reminding yourself of what God has done. Part of the reason we don't often pray as we should is because we don't believe that God will actually work. So we need to be reminded of God's faithfulness. And as you pray through God's great works of history and what he's done in the Bible, you're reminded that if he so chooses, he can also deliver you and comfort you in your suffering. Our fervency and expectation increases because you know that you serve the same God that Isaac did. You serve the same God that Abraham did. You serve the same God that Jesus did. God has given his scripture and his works as a precious resources for us in times of trouble. God is not offended when we call on him to work in the past. Actually, he's delighted in it because this type of prayer affirms that God is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. It is also important to articulate, though, that this is not a trite little formula that to get God to answer. God and his sovereign purposes will answer as he sees fit. But we still must ask boldly. And he blesses this type of prayer. Jesus desperately prayed for deliverance in the garden, yet his prayer of deliverance was coupled with his words, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. You can seek to leverage God's work in prayer while still leaving the outcome in God's hands. So then how should we pray through what God has done in the past? For, for myself, a prayer of mine is for conversions in the nation of Canada. Praise God that there are conversions, but conversions often seem like a slow trickle rather than an overwhelming flood. So I pray for God to work based on what he's done in the past. Lord, you are the God who caused Nineveh to, to repent in Jonah's day. You're the God who saved 3,000 people in one day on the day of Pentecost. You're the God who saved hundreds of thousands in the great awakening in different times of history. What do you do today, Lord? You are my king too. You are our king too. You are able to do it. So do it, Lord. For the Christian who is suffering, use how God has dealt with his people in the past and apply it to your current situation. To the parent who is a child who is walking away from the faith, leverage God's act of saving Saul, the great persecutor of the church. And at, Lord, if you save Saul, you can save my boy. To the couple who is struggling with infertility, this is the God who gave Sarah a child in 90 and Rebecca and Isaac a child after 20 years of praying. 
to, to those who have strained relationships with family, this is a God who mended the incredibly toxic relationship of Jacob and Esau. To the one who has experienced the finality of lost, this is the God who comforted Naomi and Ruth in their great times of suffering. And this is the God who can comfort you as well. I would encourage you even this week to take even 10 minutes and write down a story of what God has done in the past and use it in your prayers. And I think you will find that your fervency and expectation of what God can do will increase. As you pray through what God has done, you are reminded again of what he is able to do. Yet, what do you do when God's faithful acts still seem so far away? What do you do when the gap between what God has done and what he is doing seems irreconcilable? As the psalmist progresses, this is the situation he faces in verse 9. Just as the soldiers of Dunkirk were looking for whatever they could to get to England, the psalmist is looking for whatever he can lay his hands on to, to get to God. And in his deep, dark valley, he leverages God's faithful promises in verses 9 to 23. In verse 9, the psalmist brings an honest and forthright complaint to the Lord. Here is the first four verses, 9 to 12. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe, and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for the slaughter, and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. Similarly to the psalm Femi preached last week, the psalmist lays his complaint directly at the feet of the Lord. Lord, you have devastated us. Lord, you have made us a joke. Lord, you have sold us for peanuts. He knows that the same Lord who brings deliverance also brings calamity. He uses language that, in all honesty, can make us squirm. Can you speak to God like this? Yet, if you look at the psalm, he doesn't charge God with wrong. And he doesn't sin in the psalm that he writes. But he goes to the Lord honestly with his complaint. Do you go to the Lord with your complaints? Or do you keep them stuffed inside? One of the most difficult things in a relationship is when you have a problem with someone, but it just doesn't get brought up. And what can happen is the problem can build and build and build until you explode or the bitterness is just really rooted in your heart. And I think it's the same thing with God. If you have unexpressed frustrations towards him, that can have drastic spiritual effects on your soul. You can become resentful and bitter against God. Have you gone to him with your complaint? I would encourage you to do so. Bring your complaint to the Lord. You might be asking as you skim through the psalm, how on earth 
is the psalmist leveraging God's faithful promises. It looks to me like he's just complaining about all about how terrible a situation is. That's a very good question. In God's dealing with dealings with his old covenant people in the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, God promised blessings if they obey and curses if they disobeyed. Nearly every suffering that is mentioned in verses 9 to 14 is a curse that God has given to the nation for turning away from him. For example, in verses 9 to 14, the psalmist complains about God turning away from their armies, scattering them among the nations, selling them to another nation, and making them a disgrace or a byword before the nations. Look at what Deuteronomy 28 to 25 says. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Do you see the similarities? It's the same in Deuteronomy 28, 36 to 37. The Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that has neither you nor your father has known. And you shall become a horror, a proverb, and a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lay, lay you away. So the language is so similar. So the psalmist's argument so far is that God has given the nation the curse that covenant breakers deserve. This is what God has promised in his old covenant for those who are false to his covenant. But in verse 17, he drops a bomb. He claims that the nation has kept the covenant. He prays that all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. So he's wrestling with the gap between God's promises and his reality. It is as if he is saying, Lord, you are treating us as if we are guilty. Remember your promises. Be true to your word. It is important to know that the psalmist is not, is not uh, claiming that Israel is completely sinless and innocent. He's just claiming that they've been true to, their, to the covenant. Do you ever feel like that? Like you've been righteous, but yet suffering is coming? Like God has just placed all this suffering upon you? You can use Psalm 44 as a guide to help you pray. You can cry out to God to be true to his promises. As the psalmist wrestles with God, he continues to plead his case. He maintains that God knows that they are righteous. Yet he says, yet for your sake, we, are, we will be killed all the day long. For the righteous suffers in Psalm 44, the suffering they experienced brought about a crisis of faith because God's promises weren't coming true. The Christian ought to leverage God's promises as well. Yet a question arises as we think about this text. What promises does God give the righteous sufferer in the New Testament? In many prosperity gospel churches, they would argue that God promises material blessings to Christians as he did in the Old Covenant. So God promises you health, wealth, and prosperity. Some of you may have come from churches where this type of thinking was emphasized. 
And when those material blessings don't come to pass, it can result in despair. Or it can be blamed on the sufferer's lack of faith. We need to have clarity on what God has promised us in Christ. Do we have a promise in Christ that Christians won't be persecuted in Canada? Do we have a promise for relational harmony? Do you have a promise that God won't take those who you love most in this life? There are certainly times in the New Testament when God does answer the prayers of those who pray for physical deliverance. We see Paul on many occasions, he's rescued. He's, he's rescued from, from a prison in a single night. And in 2 Corinthians 1.10, he has confidence that God will deliver him. The text says he has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. Paul had confidence that God would deliver him on that occasion. Yet, Paul ultimately died a martyr. I do not see a promise in the New Testament where God says that Christians can expect to be kept from physical suffering. Jesus Christ himself suffered more than any man could. Jesus Christ, as the righteous sufferer, faced an unjustified arrest, a phony trial, severe beatings, and the humiliation of being crucified on a Roman cross. But not only that, he faced the full weight of the wrath of God on our behalf. He became a curse to redeem us from the curse that, that the law entailed. He cried out to the Father and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If the founder and perfecter of our faith suffered, certainly that means that Christians can expect to suffer as well. But in Christ's sufferings, he also secured the precious assurances of the promises that you can cling to when you face great suffering. And these promises that Christ brings are far greater than any Old Testament blessing that the psalmist had. Romans 8 is a passage in scripture that clearly outlines the promises of God in Christ. Fittingly, Paul actually quotes verse 23 of Psalm 44 in Romans 8. Paul is writing to a Roman audience who in a couple of years, or in a few years, would actually suffer brutally at the hands of Nero. So what he's doing them, what he's doing for them, he's preparing and giving them the resources that they need that they can, they can hold on to when they suffer. Th this text is so beautiful. I'm just going to read Romans 8, 31 to 39. It goes like this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Paul is using Psalm 44, 23 as evidence of what Christians will suffer. But suffering cannot separate them from the love of Christ. You are super conquerors in Christ Jesus. Your suffering is not a curse, but ultimately something that God is using for your good and his glory. He has taken your curse and he has given you his blessed spirit. As the song was sung later on, he has promised you himself. And how precious is that? He has given you his spirit to comfort you, to help you, and even to pray and intercede on your behalf when you can't quite find the words to articulate your pain and suffering that you're going through. God may not always deliver you from, your situ from the situation you're going through on this earth, but he does promise you that you will conquer the pain, sin, and suffering of this present age, and one day he will bring you into his eternal presence, and you will be with Christ. As we talk about promises that you can leverage, there is no greater promise, the promise that Christ loves you, and you will never be separated from him. This promise is like an indestructible navy ship that will carry you safely to shore. For those of you today who aren't Christians, this promise of Christ's love, presence, and eternal security can be yours if you turn away from your sins and trust in Jesus as your Savior. This great ship of Christ's love can be yours if you, if you get into it. But will you step into it? Or will you just stay on the shore? Will you just wait as the ship is about to leave? Because one day it will be too late. One day you will pass away from this earth and suffer eternally for rebelling against God. And how do you know? What assurance do you have that that day isn't today? So leave your sins and hop into the boat. Trust in Jesus Christ and he will save you and forgive your sins. For the Christian you should still lament and make your complaints known to God. But in the new covenant, you also have an assurance of salvation and God's presence that the sons of Korah could only dream of. So lament, but affirm God's promises and leverage them to plead with God to act. As the psalmist goes to the end of the psalm, we see that it's not only God's acts of faithfulness and God's promises that he gives us. He also wants you to leverage his faithful character. So leverage God's faithful character. The psalmist has already made a thorough case to the Lord, but he sees it fit to conclude with a bold plea. Like the British at Dunkirk, in his desperation, he is going to exhaust every possible avenue to ask God to answer his prayers. So what he does is he asks a series of pointed rhetorical questions to the Lord, 
prepared with desperate requests to deliver Israel. In his pleading, even more clearly than in the last stanza, the psalmist makes clear that he feels as if the nation has been forgotten by God. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. The psalmist feels as if God is sleeping. But not only is he sleeping, he's sleeping while Israel's humiliated and they're under the boot of their enemy. His, God's smiles hidden, his presence far, his salvation distance. And as James has noted previously, the Psalms language describes his experience rather than the theological reality of the situation. God certainly doesn't sleep. <laughs> he, he's not sleeping right now. He's wide awake. <laughs> Nor does he reject us forever. That language of forever is very, is, is very de definite. He hasn't rejected people forever. However, there are times when God does seem distant. And there are times where his providence is mysterious. As Isaiah 45, 19 says, Surely you are the God who hides yourself. But even amid the distance, the psalmist boldly prays to the Lord. He can pray to the Lord because he knows the character of his God. The Hebrew word for steadfast love is a said, and is used to describe God's loyal, faithful love. And God's character is really the foundation of the entire psalm. The, the psalmist couldn't pray based upon God's acts of past faithfulness if he wasn't faithful. He, he couldn't pray on God's promises if he wasn't faithful, right? He's praying based on his character kind of throughout the whole psalm. And because of God's character, even when the nation is at its low point, they know that God is more than able to answer them because this is a good God. Jesus tells us something similar in Matthew 7, 7. He says this, Ask and will be given, you, given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who seek him? God is a Father who has a heart of love and a heart of generosity towards you. And when you come to him earnestly, he hears you. And he's pleased, he's delighted to give you good gifts. So pray through his character. Pray through this God's great fatherly character and be reminded of who he is. There are also plenty examples, examples of, of saints in the Old Testament leveraging God's character in their prayers. 
As Moses prays to God to not destroy Israel, he says, Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have, for, you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. When Abraham intercedes with God not to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, he says, um, Shall not the judge of the earth do right? So Abraham is appealing to God based upon his justice. And God, and God answers his prayer. Christian, how much more of God's proven character do you have access to? God has proven his steadfast love by sending his precious beloved son to die on your behalf. In Christ's loving character, he can sympathize with the righteous sufferer because he is the righteous sufferer. He has been rejected. He has been forsaken. He has been mocked. He was the sheep that was slaughtered. He is the man who was acquainted with grief. And he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And he's done that all for you, Christian. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, but without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. God has shown you his character through his steadfast love in Christ. So as you pray, plead with him based upon his steadfast love. Plead with him to work in your life. You belong to Christ and he loves you. And surely you will receive mercy and grace in your time of need. Amen. The British soldiers found mercy in their time of need at Dunkirk. Leveraging their resources paid off. Hundreds of ships brought them home safely through the heroic and gracious efforts of men and women and they lived to fight another day. For you, Christian, God has given you so many resources in your time of trouble. Will you use them? Will you use them? He has given you his acts. He's given you his promises. He's given you his character. But most of all, he's given you himself. Lean on him. So go to this God boldly, and he will be on your side no matter what you're going through. Please pray with me.